All right, so I will go ahead with some of the ones that we have that have been submitted for this particular fireside chat. The first one comes from William O'Brien, and he's asking the morals of euthanasia for a pet. I'm faced with having to put down one of my family pets. She's old, but the reason is not for physical health, but for behavioral. Behavioral. <laughs> Good luck, Justin. Behavioral <laughs> stability. Mm-hmm. What is the more moral option? Well, you know, pets deserve our respect just as people do. They are conscious critters. But when a pet becomes dysfunctional, it's a little different than when a person becomes dysfunctional. When a person becomes dysfunctional, there's a lot of other ways for them to regain some of that function. Pets, when they have injuries and problems, you know, nobody fits them with an, you know, an artificial heart or an artificial leg or uh, provides uh, counseling services for them. Uh, does all that sort of thing. So we treat them a little differently than we do with people because their life is more dependent on themselves. They have to depend on themselves to get around, to feed themselves, to do that sort of thing. And their owners may or may not have the time to do all that for them. If a pet, you know, is disabled, uh, you know, does the owner have the time to feed them? Is the owner willing to do that? So then that becomes part of the moral choice. How much is enough? I'm assuming that this pet, you know, is like you say, it's, it's behavioral issues, not that it can't keep going on, but it's most pets when they get older, what they do is they no longer can hold bowel and bladder, you know, so you have those sorts of problems. And is that a point where you do them in or is that a point where you just clean it up and make their life happy? I'd say that depends on the owner. If the owner cannot do that, let's say the owner uh, has a job and, you know, the house is empty all day long. There is no one. You can't find a service or you can't afford a service to come in and do that for you or take your pet to a pet daycare and have them take care of it. You don't have the funds to do that. You don't have the ability to stay home. You can't lose your job then you have a different choice set. Then you may have to, um, you know, put down a dog that has become unable to take care of itself because you don't have the resources or the time, the ability to do it yourself. That is a, you know, that's the choice. Now, what if you have something that's just not that way? You could take care of it, but you just don't want to be put to that much trouble. Yeah, okay, I could, you know, I could just, do whatever. Um, I could always feed the dog, even though the dog's legs don't work anymore. I could put a food bowl under its chin and it could eat, couldn't move around, wouldn't be very happy because it wouldn't be able to move, but I could continue its life on. Uh, if I wanted to, if I take the time to do that, then you also have to consider the dog. What's the dog's quality of life? Is the dog able to enjoy being alive? Is it able to be part of what it values? Or is it just perfectly happy just lying there on the floor, you know, eating and drinking when you put a bowl under its chin? You have to make those choices. And those are similar choices we make for people. 
people who want to, uh, who would rather die than live in the way they're living. You know, that's a, that's a, uh, a thing that's become more of a legal issue these days. The, the assisted suicides where somebody who is in a lot of pain or totally dysfunctioned or just at the end, they'd rather go on. Uh, if they're older and their illness is creating huge expenses, they're building up huge debts that maybe their family will have to, to meet, then, you know, that's a thing that people have to be able to decide. So it's the same as with people, Bill. I think it's, you know, like with people, it's all a single, each, each instance is a totally new decision. You can't just make a, a, a blanket thing. Oh, well, when this happens, then you can do that. Everyone has to be valued according to the value of life to the dog, to the person, and the ability of a system, be the owners or be it the health system or whatever else, to take care of someone. So those are the issues. You get to a point where you think that the best thing for the dog is something that is quick and easy rather than suffering and being miserable, then that's probably a good moral decision to end the dog's life and let them uh, uh, get out of that daily suffering mode, daily agony mode. If the dog's still happy and having a good time and you're willing to do whatever you have to do to keep that going, then it's just, you know, then it's it's your choice to how much effort do you have before it becomes a burden that you can't bear anymore. But whatever it is, think about it, do it, whatever your choice is, and be gracious with it. Don't feel guilty about it. That's the worst thing you can do is come to a decision and then feel guilty. That is a, that's probably the worst outcome of all the choices that you have. So whatever it is, come to the best conclusion you can. Remember, we don't have to have perfect choices. We just have to do the best we can and make your choice and then live it, learn from it, go on. But don't feel guilty. It's just a tough choice. I think that's very good advice, Tom. Um, Our next question comes from Eric V. What determines the difficulty of an experience packet? And you've answered some of this in some of the previous questions we've had. On the one hand, it makes sense to think that that difficulty of an experience packet is determined by the amount of decision space it provides, since as decision space increases, the number of wrong options increases more than the number of right options. Similar to a puzzle game, the more choices you have, the harder it gets to get right. On the other hand, however, it seems that it would require a higher quality of consciousness to be at peace with more limiting circumstances. For example, if I were to end up in prison or get severely handicapped for some reason, that would cause a significant reduction in my decision space. But I feel that would be much more emotionally and psychologically challenging situation to deal with compared to my current situation. In terms of accepting it, being at peace with it, and making the best with it. So it seems a bit of a paradox. Could you please shed some light on this? Well, the light that I can shed is just that it is a very complex issue you bring up. There's many ways to look at it, and depends on what it is you're trying to accomplish. Let's say uh, 
you uh, simply uh, incarnate as a one of the starving children of an area where where poverty and famine is is uh, endemic. Okay? And maybe your life expectancy is only uh, you know five years old. Why would somebody do that? Well, there are things there, like you say. There's there's challenges there, but if you've ever seen the pictures from areas like that, you'll often see a family, a mother, and often a couple of children hanging on to her, and they are a tight-knit family. They still smile. The children are still playing with toys. Yeah, their bellies are bloated because they're 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 uh, starving, but you see that they love each other. They care. And when that mom gets handed a little bit of food, she gives it to her children, takes just a little bit for herself because she needs to stay there to care for them, and they all share whatever they have. Well, if you look at it, that's in some ways a very beautiful set of choices that they've made to stick together in, you know, in really horrible situation and be there for each other. Anybody finds anything, they share it with everybody else. They have opportunities to have that kind of an experience. So something that's horrible isn't necessarily devoid of learning opportunity. And the opportunities come in all sizes and shapes. I don't think the system knows exactly what a, you know, what's going to, what, what uh, incarnation is going to be challenging or not challenging. It can take a guess, look at the possibilities and those probabilities. But once that incarnation starts, it can end up going anywhere. All sorts of things can happen because in this world, you got seven and a half billion people making choices and all our choices affect other people's choices and stuff happens that no one would necessarily be able to predict because we have free will and we don't always do what's expected of us. Things change dramatically. So you get what you get, and you try to learn from whatever your situation is. You end up in jail. May not because may not be because you did something bad. It may be because you did something really good, and the people that run the jail are really bad people. You know, you may be in bad in, in jail for doing good things. If it happens, it happens, and you deal with it. You learn from it best you can. From whatever situation befalls you, you learn from them. So whether you have a very challenging experience or not so challenging experience isn't the point. I guess the point is to make as much progress as you can given the experience that you have. And most of us have enough challenge to keep us focused on growing up. I don't know that there's any experience that is so devoid of challenge that you don't have an opportunity to to grow up. But you're right. Challenge can be anything. It's hard to define. So I think there is no answer to that, that this is challenging and that's not. Depends on who you are, what you have to learn, and, and uh, you know, what you've done before and what you're trying to do now. Situation like I described with, you know, being a starving child someplace may be the perfect starter point for a new IUOC that just wants to get their feet wet a little bit, not take too long. You know, you die at, you know, if you die at five, well, that wasn't a lot of investment. You got to find out what it was like and you had your first lesson, one of caring and love, even though you had this uh, issue of not getting enough to eat, but you know, your hunger stops after a bit. It's not like you're miserable. 
life just gets harder and harder the one day you lie down and go to sleep and you don't wake up. But it's not uh, necessarily as horrible as it looks from the outside if you're on the inside, if you've got a loving situation to be part of. Now, maybe you don't. Maybe there's something, there's other things that are worse than that. But everything has an opportunity to grow up. And the things that are really, really bad where you see no opportunity at all, again, we'll take an example of a child where let's say a child is born psychotic parents and the parents torture the children. Well, if it's a point, if it's a thing where there seems to be no end to that, typically what happens is that the LCS extracts those free will awareness units, sends them on to some other, some other avatar and the system itself will play out the lives of those who have nothing to do but, you know, be tortured. So that's just, you know, so the system helps that because it's not to the system's advantage to have people get real, what, twisted because they've had horrible things happen to them over a long period of time. So there's, it tries to mediate the best it can in those sorts of situations. That's, uh, you know, life is full of things and we, we only know what our challenges are going to be when we have to meet them. I don't think there's a single definition of what's challenging and what's not. It just depends on the individual. All right, Tom, the next question uh, comes from Sveta. And there are two questions, both to do with fear. Um, I'm going to consolidate them a little bit. What she is saying is that she was at one time before she began this inner journey fearless and oblivious to this this kind of uh, exploration of consciousness. Mm-hmm. She was, um, now that she's knowledgeable and experiencing a lot of things uh, within this exploration, she is actually more afraid. Um, she's afraid to be inside her ego, but, but outside is much scarier, is what she says. And this phrase, is it okay to give up on all of this, or will this be considered a betrayal by the system? Seems that she's in a very uh, fearful place at this time. Well, if you're in a very fearful place, do what works for you. If what works for you right now best is to, yes, give it all up and and, uh, go back to a place that that was better, well, go do that. Give it up, go back to a place that's better, and then maybe you can go forward again after that, or maybe not till the next lifetime. But torturing yourself when you already feel bad is not on anybody's path to growing up. That just tends to get worse and worse and worse. The more you, the more you push on something that's broken, the more likely it's going to break more. So if you get to a point like that where you're kind of desperate, then go, go back to where you weren't so desperate. I don't think that you gained fear in the process of, of starting on this path. You just found fears that you didn't know you had. When you were oblivious in the previous uh, times, uh, you may have felt like you were happier. Maybe you were a lot younger than two, and your worldview was smaller, and you did not uh, have the perspective that you have now. 
And when you're in that viewpoint, you can, everything can seem like it's just great, you know. But as you grow up, you get more responsibility and you understand things more and life gets more difficult in the sense that your choices get harder. Your choices get harder because the consequences get bigger. You know, when you're, when you're three years old and you do something that, that's wrong, you make a mistake. There's hardly any consequences at all. You know, you just, somebody pats you on the head and says, oh, well, nice try, you know, and don't, don't reach out for that hot thing anymore. And then you're back in the game again and there's not such a big deal. But when you really make a bad mistake when you're 40 or 50, that bad mistake probably ripples through a whole lot of other people and creates a big problem for you. You know, so you're five years old and you get, you know, caught stealing a cookie. It's, it's not such a big consequence when you're 50 years old and you get stealing from the company's bank account. Oh, that may be, you know, 20 years in the slammer. It's a much bigger deal. So life has a way of giving us more and more difficult choices as we grow up, as we get older. Yes, we get more decision space, but we get a lot of tougher choices with bigger consequences, too. So go back to where it was comfortable and then start again. But don't just stay in a place that's terrorizing you just because you don't want to quit or you don't want to give up on it. You have to know when to hold them and when to fold them, right? That's in a song. And if you're to a point where it's best to, you know, fold your hand, put it on the table and go back to a more comfortable place, go do that. You can always start again. Don't drive yourself into the ground. All right. Thank you, Tom. A question coming from uh, Robert A. Uh, on the MBT forum. You said that the LCS is not perfect. How those imperfections show up in our world is his question. How to distinguish between them and our own individual imperfections. Now we did have a, a video on your YouTube channel now called The Origins of Consciousness where you presented a theory which is a conjecture of how the LCS may have been less perfect at, at one time and how it has evolved. How would you answer this question? How these imperfections show up in our world now? Well, for the most part, infer- the system's imperfection doesn't show up in our world you know, to very many people. It, uh, as Donna mentioned, there, there is already a, a talk out that I did that talks about some imperfection in the, in the system that was rather dramatic maybe early on. But that's really not the case. So there's very little imperfection that you're going to see now, except the, the, um, well, not even most people will see that, you know. I've seen some imperfections in the system that, uh, had to do with violations of rules that were in the system that just went unnoticed. You know, a perfect system wouldn't allow violations of rules. If you have rules, then, you know, people obey the rules. They don't obey the rules, and something's done about that. Uh, so there's rules, let's say, about uh, entities from one uh, uh, reality frame interfering with a different reality frame. So those are their rules. Sometimes that interference takes place, and nothing happens. 
mainly because the system just wasn't paying attention because it's got a lot of things to pay attention to. It's not perfect. It's not, you know, it's a finite system. It only can do so much. So that's an imperfection that you'd only know if you traveled around a lot in the non-physical. You'd see that. You wouldn't notice it from here, though, likely. So that's just an example, and that doesn't happen often. That's way out there in the margins. That uh, is a very unusual thing. But you have to allow it its imperfection. Otherwise, a perfect system is an impossible system. You can't have systems that are perfect. Perfect systems that can make no errors are not systems that have free will choice. This is a consciousness system. It has free will choice. It doesn't necessarily know about everything that might happen, everything that could happen in its system and everywhere else. So it may make choices or fail to make choices just out of that lack of knowing. So there isn't, this isn't a deterministic system where everything's known. The system is also a consciousness like us with free will. And it does not know everything because everything hasn't happened yet. That only happens as choices are made. So it can't always be at the right place at the right time because it's just too complicated to keep up with. So there's limitations to what the system can do, to the resources it has, to uh, how much of those resources it's going to be spent doing, you know, looking at the minutia or the details in the game. So that's it. So I'd say there's probably nothing that you're going to, that the average person would say, ah, that's a flaw. That's probably not the case. Um, A lot of things, the system just lets go as they go, but that's not really a flaw. In other words, it lets just things happen the way they happen. And you'd say, well, that's an odd thing to happen or that shouldn't have happened. And well, it doesn't plan. The system isn't playing with its pet people down here. The system gives us free will we interact with each other, and it pretty much just lets that ride however it goes. We need to suffer the consequences of our of our uh, own choices. But there are times, if it does not show, in other words, it, the system never shows its hand, that there even is a system, it can go in and make changes, like I just mentioned, putting the IU, you know, putting an IUOC, putting itself in the place of a of a situation where kids or even adults have no future but to be tortured can do that keeps that adult from messing up his own consciousness so there's things it can do that don't show nobody would ever notice that as a as a uh, something consciousness did because it's completely unnoticeable but it does what it can without ever uh, circumventing or I shouldn't say circumventing without ever overriding our free will choices otherwise it wouldn't be free will it would be, you're free to do whatever you want as long as it's what I want. And that's not free will. All right. Um, it is a big system. And you mentioned imperfections might not be noticed with outside of this reality. Uh, rules could be broken. But if everything is recorded, um, that could be looked on later. If it was significant enough, it could be looked on, brought up, and dealt with at that point, if it was a significant enough break in the yes. rules, I would guess. That is true. That can happen. But that's not the perfect system. The perfect system fixes everything just as it needs fixing. You know, 
it's you have to go back and do it later. I wouldn't call that a, a perfect system. Okay. All right, the next question. Well, one more thing occurs to me. You might sure. say it depends on how you define a perfect system. Just what Frank and I were talking about in the last in the questions that he did. You might think that it's an imperfect system to put somebody into an incarnation and then whatever happens happens. You know, it's not hand designed or made perfectly for that for those choices to be just exactly the ones they need and no things that drag them into poor choices and whatever, but that really wouldn't be a perfect system. You know, some people say, well, it's obviously not a perfect system because look at all the nastiness in the world. That's not right. The system puts us here, gives us free will, and we deal with it. And we have to deal with each other's choices as well as with our own choices. That's the way it works. And that's not a perfect schoolhouse. You probably, if you, the perfect schoolhouse would be if you had a single tutor that sat down with you in your free time and taught you something. That may be the perfect schoolhouse. This is not. This is a schoolhouse that's got a lot of rough and tumble in it. A lot of things to deal with. But given the system and what the system's trying to do and the numbers the system works with, it has processes that are effective and don't violate free will. So you might say, well, that's perfect for that kind of big system that we have to deal with. And somebody else may say, well, that's not perfect because just a single tutor for everybody would be better. That is really just playing with the word perfect. The system does the best it can with the resources it has, but it can't do everything for everybody. It's limited. All right, thank you. Um, the next question has to do with changing probable outcomes. I have heard Tom say words to the effect that most people don't have a very focused intent, and so it doesn't have a very powerful effect in terms of changing probable outcomes. He often points out that many of us mostly are operating out of our intellect and not from our being level, and so we don't have much impact on the thing we wish to affect. On the other hand, I've often heard him say that when we have negative feelings or thoughts about bad things that might happen, we tend to bring about the very thing that we are afraid of. He says our negative thoughts and anxiety increase the possibility of bad outcomes. This seems to be a bit of a contradiction here. When we want something to happen, we are operating out of weak intellect and ego and have little effect. And when we don't want something to happen, it makes it happen. Can you maybe clarify that? Sure. Things that come out of the being level have more power than things that come out of the intellect. Okay. Where is all that emotion? Where is that fear? Where is that dread? It's not so much in your intellect. That is at the being level. For, uh, for instance, uh, an example. <clears throat> When somebody, um, we had Michelle here talking about getting her buttons pushed. When somebody pushes your button, you don't say, oh, they just said something that I don't like. I should get angry now and then proceed to get angry. You see, that would be if fear was an intellectual process, that's what would have to happen. You'd have to decide that it's time to be angry and then be angry. But that fear... That button is wired right to your being level. So when that button gets pushed, roar, you know, the anger, the, the dysfunction, the, the fight 
comes right up out of you instantly without your intellect ever having anything to do with it. That's because that sort of thing lives at your being level. Okay. So most people, when they are being, um, well, I, I won't go there. Just Let's just say that the being level is where your emotions are. You're emotionally at the being level. That's why I tell people, if you want to know how well you're doing, look at your emotions. Look at your feelings. Do you feel happy? Do you feel, you know, fulfilled? Do you feel that uh, life is great and and can't, you know, just waiting for that next challenge to, you know, to work on? You know, do you feel that way or do you feel like, oh, this life is such a burden and such a pain? You know, I keep struggling and struggling, but things I want don't happen and the things I don't want do happen and, uh, it's just a lot of trouble and a lot of a lot of effort and a lot of anxiety. Well, that means you've got a lot of fear if you have all of that feeling that is negative. If you have those feelings that are very positive, then it means you don't have a lot of fear. The feeling space, the emotional space, is at the being level. It's at the core of you. It's what you really are. A lot of fears you don't even know you have them. They only exist at the at the being level. That's why those fears are a little more powerful in modifying future probability than the intellect. The intellect's a thought. Oh, I'll throw a penny in the wishing well and make a wish. You know, I wish to find a gold brick, you know, sitting beside my left tire when I get back to the car. Things like that hardly ever work. Wishes generally are very weak. You have to get your mind you have to get your cognitive effort your, your cognitive function down at the being level in order to get power to change things so with the cognitive level down there the thinking level down at the being level now you can modify things much better well your emotions are already at that level and uh, they tend to affect things more easily than your intellect so an intellect doesn't an intellect doesn't get, doesn't get worried. An intellect doesn't react to, you know, buttons being pushed. That's all at the being level. So all of that negativity we're talking about isn't so much intellectual as it is who you are. That's your fear. And that fear lives at your core, not in your intellect. So that's why it's like that. It is a little uneven that way that yes, the, the things we're afraid of, Create the thing, you know, create those things that we're afraid of much more easily than the things we want. You know, well, what I want is this, and what I get is what my fear creates. What I want, you know, is what your intellect creates, and we all know that mostly we don't get what we want when it comes out of the intellect. So even if you have a medical problem and somebody diagnoses you and say, well, you know, looks like uh, you have a problem here. It looks like you have a, you know, cancer or something. Well, that fear that you get isn't an intellectual fear. Oh, gee, that's not a good thing. Hmm. Well, that's too bad. You know, that's your intellect talking. That fear you get about that cancer is down here in the gut that says, oh my God, you know, this thing might kill me. What, is, you know, and then the fear blossoms up and that fear is going to make that cancer prognosis more likely to be true or more likely not to go away then your intellect is that, oh, gee, I'm not going to let that get me down. I'm just going to be 
fine and smile all the way through it. You know, that's not going to help much either because all that's intellectual. So you need to work at that, work at the same level that your fear works. And that's at your core, at your being level. And you need to do that with your, with your cognitive function. All right. Uh, Jan adds a question to that. Uh, so the more we go into the being level, the more fear we come up with, if there is some. For a long time, he basically had uh, no emotions or mild emotions, and those come back now slowly. So the yes, more we go into the being level, the more, the more we dig yeah. up the Sure, the more you go into that being level, the more likely you are to bump into your fears and find your emotions and all that other stuff that's in that being level. Um, that's why many people, when they first learn to meditate, they run into scary stuff. There's a lot of people who started meditation because they thought it would be a good idea, and then they quit because they kept running into scary stuff. They kept bringing up stuff out of their own fear. And that's because that meditation state is a being level state, not an intellectual state. And when you get in that being level, if you've got ugly things going on, well, those ugly things pop up in front of you when you're in that being level. So there's lots of people who have gotten to the being level through meditation, found scary stuff, and decided meditation wasn't for them. That scary stuff is basically inside of them mostly inside of them. Yes, you, uh, yeah, you'll find more feelings down there. The more you get in touch with that being level, the more you'll find your feelings. It's that intellect that shuts those feelings off. Those feelings, they get you in trouble. <laughs> if you don't have feelings, you'll never get in trouble. You just, you just got your boat and the rudder, you got hold of the rudder, you can steer it where you want, and your life is just going to go like that. And then eventually you find that your life feels kind of empty and barren and it isn't much fun anymore because, well, you're just in your boat and you got charge of the rudder. You're going exactly where you want to go, when you want to go there, but that isn't enough to make you happy. That's your intellect controlling your reality. And your intellect can steer the boat all right, but you lose all the richness that's that that belongs to you from being human when you do that you kind of turn yourself into a robot you don't have feelings you don't have emotions oh your life is straight and steady everything's under control but you somehow are missing something you somehow don't have that satisfaction there's some other part of you that is crying out for something else and that's the then that becomes the pain and then you start you know, I don't mean gens, but, you know, then people go out and, you know, they decide to drink, you know, every night after work. They go to a bar and drink because it's that, that part of them down there that isn't satisfied, that isn't happy, needs to be made quiet again. So they start doing things that distract them from that problem. And then pretty soon even their boat isn't being steered very well anymore. And then the whole thing blows up in their face. So. It's a good thing to get into your being level and find out what's down there and deal with it and own it and uh, embrace it. There's a lot of good stuff there. You just have to get rid of the fear first. That's where a lot of that joy is emotion. A lot of that joy and good feelings come out of that being level. 
you go through your life with your intellect in charge of everything, that joy is hard to find. You know, then your life becomes joyous, becomes predictable, becomes manageable, becomes controllable, but it's not joyful. Can, can I add something to that? Because um, since then, um, now I have, uh, if, if I'm meditating, it goes really quickly now, and then I have like a really, uh, um, really relaxing feeling here around my chest and it's like a stream of something that goes through the body um, if I'm in a good and relaxed state and that's something I didn't have uh, two years or one year ago so yeah that changed yeah okay good the next question does have to do with meditation too um from the MBT forum in season one episode two of elementary Sherlock Holmes hypnotized himself while sitting on a chair with his eyes open by mentally repeating the word amygdala. He said, I hypnotize myself. It's simple, really. The key is repetition. My word, as you may have guessed, is amygdala. What is the difference between self-hypnosis and meditation, especially that many meditation forms use the repetition of a word that means something like Sherlock Holmes did? Um. There is a difference. There, there is some relationship between the two, but there's a very big difference between them as well. When you're hypnotized, that process is one in which you tend to give over your choices, your choice making, your, um, your will, you might say, to the hypnotist, to somebody else. So you get hypnotized and the hypnotist, uh, you know, takes you back to something that bothered you when you're young and helps heal you for doing those kinds of, you know, by bringing up uh, the things that happened. You, know, you can, you can get hypnotized and go back and remember who it was that sat in front of you when you were in, you know, third grade, which you wouldn't be able to pull out of your own memory. But in a hypnotized state, you can pull things like that out of your memory bank that you wouldn't have. But somebody else asked the question. It's the hypnotist says, says, go back to third grade, and who was that sitting in front of you? You don't think that. So hypnotism is a point where you give your will, really, your intention away to the hypnotist, and you agree to do that. And if you cooperate with the hypnotist, then they'll put you in a space where it can give you suggestions or tell you things to think about or do or ways to feel, and those will have a major impact on you because you've take you're taking that in at a at the being level okay so that's hypnotism um and you can hypnotize yourself in a sense that you can put yourself into a state of not thinking not being aware or you can do that you can maybe hypnotize yourself being super aware about a particular thing to where your whole world just focuses down to you know the sound of the clock ticking or who comes and goes into the room or something else. So you can focus real tightly. And even self-hypnotism may be a close approximation to just self-focus. You can just focus yourself on a very particular thing. But meditation is different in the sense that the word that you say in hypnosis, in hypnosis you don't really say it. Of course, you think it. And that's not the key. The key is that the word 
there is a nonsense word that is used to get rid of thoughts. That's its sole purpose. You're supposed to, when you, when you meditate, you're supposed to get rid of thoughts. You don't want any stray thoughts going through your mind. It's to empty your mind. That's the point of, 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 uh, meditation. Having an empty mind is not the point of hypnosis. They're just totally different, going different places. And the mantra that you say is a tool for emptying your mind, not a tool for giving you an intent of some sort or to focus you on a particular thing like hypnosis would be. The mantra is just some nonsense thing, some nonsense sound that you have in your mind that you put there in order to keep the thoughts out. Like if your mind is full of the sound of the mantra, then you're not thinking about anything else. And eventually, any good meditator knows, they tell you, let the mantra go. That's the last thing you let go of. You use it until you get to a point where you are, you know, point consciousness floating in the void, and then you let go of the mantra too. It's, it becomes something that takes your attention. The reason it has to be a nonsense sound is if it were not a nonsense sound, if it was something that you knew of, it would create thoughts. If instead of a nonsense sound, it was ham sandwich, then if you kept saying ham sandwich, ham sandwich, it would make you think of a ham sandwich. It would make you hungry. It would make you do other things, you see. So it has to be some sound that means nothing to you. And it's helpful if on the end of it, it's got a little ing, ring, ding kind of sound that vibrates because that just, you know, feels nice. But that's all a mantra is. It's just stuffing your head full of nothing so that you're, you won't have thoughts. To keep your mind on a non-operative sound, it's non-operative because it doesn't mean anything. So you keep your mind on a non-operative sound so that thoughts don't come through your head. That's its only function. And then when you get to a good meditation state where you don't have thoughts, you toss the mantra away because it's no longer useful. Hypnosis is just not like that. Hypnosis has a point. It's usually got a goal. It's usually focusing your mind, and it often gives your will to a hypnotist who tells you what to focus on and what the, you know, what it is you're supposed to see and think. So very different uh, things. Question from Saul on the MBT forum. Have real sets of various reality frames all developed, i.e. the dream reality rule sets? Are they, do they all have set different kinds of rule sets and how have they developed? Well, yes, there's different sorts of rule sets. Every virtual reality must have a rule set. In a virtual reality like ours, you start with a rule set, initial conditions, and then the virtual reality evolves in a system that doesn't need a lot of rules and a rule set that has just a few rules it doesn't have to work that way like a dream reality the rule set is just the things you can do in a dream reality and the things you can't it's probably a very short list it's it's an enabler of what can be done there the rules define the reality and its makeup okay so the dream reality doesn't need many rules very few rules to uh, bind, to, to, to um, what do we call it, to define what you can and can't do 
in a dream reality. Actually, in a, dream, a dream reality, doing is often not the thing. It's not so much what you do. It's, it's just the choices you make. It's just a place for you to make choices. So all that's really required is a data stream. You need a data stream, and that data stream gives you choices. You interpret it as your reality. It gives you choices, and that's your interaction. So the 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 rule set in the dream reality is really really almost nothing. It's it's pro, it's uh, information protocols sending you information, getting information back. That's about all it would amount to. Other than that, it gives you data, you interpret it to a reality, you react to your reality, and you react in ways that have to do with what you've learned here. Under this rule set, in this reality we call our physical universe. So that's kind of dreaming, and out-of-body is pretty much the same way. In the out-of-body, uh, there's things that you... You can do now. There's other rules in the out of body because in out of body you can go reach touch someone. You know, you can go uh, talk to somebody here in the body. You can go see things here and and report them. So there's there's a few more rules of what you can do and what you can't do in the out of body state. Mostly what you can't do, you know, what would not be allowed in the out of body state. In general, you don't interact with things in the out of body state. In other words, you can't go punch somebody and, you know, and leave a bruise. Now, Bob Monroe did a test. He says in his books where he pinched someone and that pinched person did get a bruise there. But that was an exception to this rule just for Bob Monroe to, to learn for himself that indeed this was a real reality and indeed it did interact with the physical reality. So that was a lesson just for Bob. I took my son out on an out-of-body trip when he was little and liked to do those kinds of things. And uh, he hit his head on a bunch of whale bones because we were exploring the seas. And that was unusual in that usually you don't interact with matter. You just slip through it. But that was done just to give him that experience and me the experience as well. But in general, that's a rule that you don't interact with the physical world in a physical way, you interact with it just in an information sense. You're, you're limited to information connection. So, um, let's see. I don't know where else we want to go with that. Um, rule sets are just things that define a reality. So out-of-body rules and, and dream rules are mostly protocols in, in language. Something that lets the system communicate with you and you communicate to the system is really the fundamental rules in that kind of a rule set because there isn't the kind of rules that tell us, you know, how energy exchanges between things happen here in this physical reality. If I drop a rock, what'll happen? You know, if I push something or if I step in dust, what'll happen? You know, it'll leave a footprint. It'll put dust into the air. It does things. And that's the rule set has to determine all the things that can happen. So who makes the rules? The system makes the rules. The rules were generated to be evolved with the initial conditions like this or just the rules for communication protocols. The system makes, makes the rules. 
and the rules are basically made to make the to make the uh, virtual reality useful for whatever its purpose is. The second part to his question, uh, Tom, if the LCS can be nudging us at appropriate times, such as synchronicity, does that mean that the system is constantly following all actions, thoughts, intentions, feelings, etc., of every IUOC? And we touched on this a little bit, but... um, No, it doesn't necessarily track everybody. It does track those people who need to be tracked. Uh, how do you get the need to be tracked? Well, mostly it's those people who are growing up, those people who are making an effort to make good choices, those people who are trying to decide, is this reality just physical or is it bigger than that? Uh, people who are interested in bigger pictures. So because those interested people will learn more if they get a little help, then the system pays a little more attention to them. But you know, in the, in that re, uh, reply to Jens, if you're just in your rowboat with your hand on the rudder, your intellect is in control of everything, and you're just you, you're you're controlling uh, yourself completely in this life, then the system isn't going to pay a lot of attention to you. There, it's not going to do things to hurt you or to help you or anything else. You're just on your own. Okay, you're in charge. Your intellect is making all the choices and doing all the things and you know, go have a nice life. It doesn't feel like it needs to butt in unless you are ready to learn, and then that rowboat is liable to hit a rock, and something amazing happens to you that's totally outside of this world for its explanation, and then, okay, now you become a searcher. You go to the Internet and start looking for things that, that uh, you know, might have caused this. And how did that happen and what's going on? And now you become a seeker. Now the system will kind of work with you. So that's, you know, it doesn't work with everybody just the same. It doesn't track everybody. It's not looking at every move. It doesn't watch you brush your teeth at night. You know, it's that sort of thing. It's when you're doing things that that it can be helpful. It likes to be aware of those as you do them. And there's a small percentage of people who are aware enough that it interacts with them daily, even hourly. Most people interact with them rather randomly. All right, Tom, another question from the forum on love is the answer. Was there a specific point when you realized that love was the answer? And if so, did you begin to more consciously make loving choices in your life from then on? Or was it more of a refining of how you lived previously, as you seem to be pretty well balanced from the start? It was mostly just refining, you know, the, where I was before. You don't come to that conclusion just all of a sudden. It's not like, you know, you're out using and abusing people right and left, and then one day you wake up and say, ah, oh, love is the answer. You know, it doesn't work like that. You kind of grow up slowly, and you become, you know, less and less fearful, more and more, you know, love. And that's a very slow process. So by the time you get to the point that you can actually verbalize it in language and say, oh, yeah, love, that's what it's all about, you've probably been working on that path already for quite a few years, and it's not a a big dramatic change in the way you live your life. At least it wasn't for me. So it didn't hit me all of a sudden like a box of rocks. It uh, just happened very gradually 
as I grew up, that became obvious that that was the driving ethic, the driving force in our evolution was evolving toward love. And then thinking about that and why that was the case and how did that apply also helped me understand things like, you know, the entropy connection and um, the uh, larger system breaking apart into multiple pieces of IUOCs and all the rest of that kind of fell in along with the idea that love is the answer, that love is what you get when you have a low entropy consciousness and that love interacting with other people, which, which means interacting within a social system in ways that are caring and cooperative optimizes. You know, that's how you get the most out of that social system's resources. Whatever it is your limited, your limitations are, you get the most out of it. You optimize through caring and cooperation, not through grabbing and fighting. And kind of coming to that conclusion means that that's really the cornerstone of our life and where we're going and what we're doing. I mean, we're here interacting with, with people. So that's, that's how we, that's how we grow up. So it all pulled together pretty much in, in around the same time when all the pieces of the puzzle started to connect to each other. Tom, do you have a few tips for Carolyn on how you can analyze your own dreams? We've got a couple minutes left. Okay. Dreams are unique in a couple of ways. One is that while you're dreaming, and not lucid dreaming, but just regular dreams, when you're dreaming, you're dreaming from the being level. Dreams are not intellectual. When you lucid dream, you bring your intellect into the process. You bring your awareness into the process. Let's put it that way. A dream is a being level thing. So what you do in a dream is who you are. That's a good representation of who you really are. A way to work with those dreams. Uh, one, if you're interested in dreams and analyzing them, you should always start journaling your dreams. Because if you start writing your dreams down, you will have more dreams and the dreams will make more sense and become more interesting rather than just kind of silly, fluffy dreams that don't have a lot of content. They will become a lot more meaningful dreams that do have a lot of content because you're paying attention. And once you're paying attention, then the system is going to help you run into content that you're going to find useful. So you will get more content if you journal and start paying attention to your dreams. But your dreams are all given to you in metaphor. They're all metaphorical. So you can't take them literally. You know, well, I was in a dream, and my brother and my mother were in the dream also, and they did this and that. It may not be your mother and your brother. It may not be about them at all. They're metaphors for something else. So think of everything as metaphorical. What does the dream mean? is what action took place, what actually happened, what choices did I have, and what what did the choices do? What were the reactions to the choices? That's where you'll find most of the meaning, looking at your choices and the the fundamental nature that each character played, but not that they're a particular character or not. Now, it might be specific. You can have a dream about a particular person, and that's that's them, perhaps. But most of the time, the elements of your dream will be metaphorical. Some of the time they'll be literal. So you'll never know for sure. But you work first with metaphors because that is 
common. When they're literal, it's not it's not so common. But dreams can be can be literal. So also think, what can I learn from that dream? What did I do? What were my choices? What happened? And what choice did I make? And was that a good choice? Then your dreams will become learning tools. Now suddenly your dreams are going to be like like you just got enrolled in a in a university. Your dreams are always going to be about growing up and the choices that you make and so on because the system now has you paying attention. And it's going to give you dreams that are more educational as opposed to dreams that are something else, more entertaining. So you will get more or less what you need when you need it in your dreams. Well, thank you. This brings us to the top of the last hour of our fireside chat. I'd like to thank everyone for participating and for submitting questions, and we hope to see you next time. Thank you, Tom and everyone.